Annenberg Media. This is the Annenberg Learner Podcast, where we aim to elevate the education profession through conversations that inspire, recognize, and encourage innovation and best practices in the field. We track the lived experience of teachers, students, and parents alongside the ecosystem that serves them. Guest speakers will share what's working and the steps we can take to reimagine and redesign teaching and learning for our most vulnerable populations. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Annenberg Learner Podcast. Today, we welcome Tim Griffin. After mostly paying his way through college and graduate school as a performing musician, Tim Griffin brought music to work with him as an elementary teacher at Title I schools in Los Angeles. Following the model of educational music programs such as Schoolhouse Rock, Tim wrote songs to help his students remember key ideas and vocabulary from lessons in science, math, and other subjects. Test scores showed the kids really were learning more when those songs were included in regular lessons. Over the next two decades, Tim's music grew into a second full-time job with live shows, albums, and several awards along the way. And in 2012, Tim gave up his tenure to start a nonprofit called Griffin Education or Griffin Ed for the creation and sharing of educational music as a tool for learning STEM and other academic topics. Back in the ancient days, you know, when the winds began to blow and the clouds up in the sky began to blacken. All the folk were badly frightened. Was it Neptune or Poseidon? Were they fighting with a titan or a kraken? Then the lightning would flash and a thunderclap would crash. Was it Zeus or maybe Set or Fang Popo? Maybe Thor or Dionysus would accept our sacrifices, but we really didn't have a way to know. Until some people wondered whether we could understand the weather, and together started studying the air. We began to build barometers and mercury thermometers, hygrometers for knowledge we could share. We collected lots of data and began to find a way to say just what we think the weather's gonna Instead of mere mythology, we've got meteorology, because the best part of science is it's true. And I mean that literally. We can predict stuff now. Back in the ancient days when millions of people died of illnesses like polio, pertussis, and rubella, we imagined horrid horsemen who would gallop on their course and make a corpse out of a lady or a fella. Try to help our odds, sacrificing to the gods, making ointments out of rhino horn and poo. And a lot of people thought that it was working. It was not, but we didn't have a method yet for testing what was true. But today, if you get ill with a fever or a chill, modern doctors make a careful diagnosis. And instead of making guesses, we've got rigorous processes for prevention, predication, and prognosis. While with modern sanitation and effective vaccinations, we have saved entire nations from their graves. So now instead of mere mythology, we've got microbiology. Because the best part of science is it saves. Lives, that is. Tens of millions of them. So when you come across a 
fossil of a creature that's colossal, or you see a star that's moving in the sky. Don't assume that it's a fairy or a dragon mean and scary. You can understand what's happening if you try. Because a myth's an allegory, but you know it's just a story, so enjoy it for the way it makes you feel. Ah, but when you start to wonder why the lightning and the thunder, part of science, my favorite part of science, the greatest part of science is it's real, whether you believe in it or not. Wow, what a treat. Thank you. <laughs> that was fantastic, Tim. Well, thanks. So what we do is we write songs, you know, mostly me so far, but I'm gathering more and more songs into the library by other people. The idea here is to have songs that teach specific grade level standards. You remember watching Schoolhouse Rock on Saturday morning TV, and you may have seen it on YouTube. More recently, we've seen uh, on the Animaniacs, they had those wonderful geography songs. And, and of course, all of the old stories that we have, uh, the Torah, the Bhagavad Gita, Gilgamesh, Beowulf, Iliad, Odyssey, these were all songs for a long, long time before they were ever written down. And the reason is because even back then we knew that if you learn something through a song, if it's got a rhyme and it's got a beat, it will stick in here better. And by the way, we have solid data at Griffin Ed. We did a study with 170 kids in kindergarten through fifth grade. We were able to show that kids who hear one of our songs five times or more is going to test higher when you give them a test on the topic of the song. It just sticks in the head better. What age group or grade level does this, is this for? And then um, how is it presented in the classroom? This one is really aimed at the primary grades, kindergarten through second, but it's one that I've found is pretty popular with the upper elementary and middle school and even with grown-ups. And one of the privileges of my job is I get to talk with a lot of professional academics, uh, you know, real live scientists and real live historians and archeologists to find out more about what they do and how they do it. Uh, and in fact, I'm doing a, a, a songwriting residency for NASA in May. They're gonna fly me to Atlanta for their international conference on astrobiology. And I'll be doing a couple of shows while I'm there to entertain them, but mostly I'm gonna be sitting down with people and asking lots of dumb questions. And so, and, and then trying to put it into plain English. I mean, every song that, that we share has one big idea that we want to stick in here and then a few supporting ideas and then some vocabulary that we try to use in context. The one big idea for this song is that science is based on observation, what you can see out in the real world, and then you try to figure out what's going on and then you start making predictions based on what you think is going on. And then if your predictions work, then you're on to something. If your predictions don't work, then you need to go rethink your idea. You know, that just reminds me of the importance of science and math in, in school and particularly mm -hmm. in elementary grades. I know that elementary school teachers often don't have a background in those fields and it's not until middle school when they really get into the discipline. I'm curious, um, is most of your experience with the music with elementary or middle school or even upper level grades? What, what does that look like? Yeah, mostly elementary. That's where my professional training and experience was. I taught for 18 years with LAUSD as a multi-subject teacher, eventually specializing in STEM and inclusion teaching, which is where you work with the kids who have 
mild special needs. They're, they don't need a special day program, but they may need some accommodations for different learning styles. That's where I got into uh, bringing more and more of the arts into the classroom. We, you know, we did drama for math. On Friday afternoons, we would do masterpiece theater, where the kids would write and perform short plays about whatever we had been working on for math that week. And then we would you know, write songs, by, sometimes by myself, about a lesson, or sometimes with the kids, where they would have to figure out what are the main ideas of the lesson, and then look up some rhyming words online, and then, and then start drafting lyrics, and I would help them with the meter, and we fit it to a tune that they already know. If we can integrate movement and visual arts and music, we can bring the whole brain to the task of learning which means not only do we learn it faster, but we remember it longer, we understand it better. And we've even seen uh, with elderly people who are starting to suffer degeneration of the brain, they may not remember their grandchildren's names, they may not know what day of the week it is, but they can remember the pop songs they learned when they were teenagers. I go to a nearby senior home with, uh, with my piano teacher, and I'll put on a suit and I'll do, you know, with a little flower in it, and I'll sing jazz standards for them. These people who have just kind of been sitting there staring off at nothing, all of a sudden they're sitting up in their wheelchairs making eye contact, and some of them are starting to sing along, you know, fly me to the moon, because it's, it's wired into their brains so hard that even when the day of the week is gone, the music is still there. So it's, it seems to me crazy that we don't use this all the time in the classroom. Which brings me to what makes my nonprofit different than just you know one more teacher with a ukulele or a guitar. But there is no one place where a teacher or a parent or a kid can go to, to find a song. I need something for seventh grade math, or I've, I, I'm, in, you know, I'm in fifth grade, we're studying American history, what can we find about that? So the main purpose of my nonprofit, which is Griffin Education, is we make all my music and, and, and music by other people with, with permission. We make it available. We organize it by grade level and subject in alignment with the standards of the state of California and some other states, along with the Common Core and the Next Generation Science Standards, which means that if, if we can find or write a good song for fourth grade earth science for the kids in Los Angeles, it's also going to work for the kids in Boston or Miami or Seattle or you know any state that's using the same standards. Do you find that there are school sites or districts that are more open to this kind of supplement to their curriculum? Why isn't this everywhere if we know and the data and the research shows that music and even writing lyrics can really help with retention? What I find is when I'm at a school doing a staff training or a live show for the kids or a residency in one of the classrooms, uh, people are always excited about it and they're like, yeah, we got to do this every day. But the big dilemma for teachers is every day they come into that classroom and they've got about 10 pounds of potatoes and to fit into a five pound bag as far as their scheduling goes. They're starting off the day knowing full well that there is no way they can fit everything in because there's so much content out there and the teachers are so overscheduled. I'm in a, a program with the Children's Media Association where we're looking to find a collaborator who can take our music and get it on TV. 
either uh, as animated videos in between episodes of shows or as a recurring feature on someone else's show, kind of like, you know, the Animaniacs, they, they would have their cartoons and then they, they would have the song about geography. Because, uh, you know, we, we've got data that shows that this really works. We've had lots of good feedback from teachers and parents and kids, but we know that they need to hear a song at least a few times before it's going to really make a difference in their head. And for the people who don't know about what we do, it's not doing any good at all for them. The good news for us is because we can deliver it all online, there is no scaling problem, and you know, the, which is why I don't do drama, for example, with my nonprofit, because that kind of requires that somebody be there to help the kids put together a play. And with over a thousand schools just in LAUSD, I can't get to all of them. But if I can make a good recording and a good video, and you know, and make sure that you know that, that you know the professional academics, the college level people say yes, this is correct. You're using the vocabulary the right way, and the teachers say yes, this is exactly what my kids are going to be tested on this year. And if we can make that available for free online and make it easy to find by grade level and subject, then we can help millions of kids, and that's the goal. You can subscribe to the Annenberg Learner podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Did you see any changes in your audience, either the demographic or growth during the pandemic? From what I understand is districts were looking for things online yes. that were educational. We got a grant from the Lewis and Harold Price Foundation to reinvent the songwriting residency program as an online activity. So the way it works now is instead of me going to a school and going into a classroom, now I meet with small groups of kids from a classroom and help each group write a song about a topic chosen by the teacher. Uh, you know, so it's, it's directly related to what they're studying right now. And I guide the kids through a process of researching the topic, drafting lyrics about it, and then I help them set their lyrics to a tune that they can sing. So that way, when I'm not there to play for them, they can still use it as a practice tool. And what the teachers find is that not only do the kids become stone-cold experts on the topic, I mean like 100% experts on the topic, because they're having to study it not just to satisfy some writing requirement for the teacher, they know they're going to be performing this for their peers. And they want it, they really want it to be correct. They want it to be funny. Not only do they become experts on the topic, but their writing skills improve, according to the teachers. Now, it's hard to objectively measure their writing skills, as you know. Uh, but what the teachers say is the structure of songwriting, where you've got verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, that art, that, that structure that's imposed on you requires you to think about, okay, where is this idea in my head going to go in here? If it's the big idea, it goes in the chorus. If it's a supporting idea, it goes in one of the verses. And this is true for pretty much any pop song. What, what's the big idea? Maybe it's wave your hands in the air like you just don't care, right? <laughs> Everything else in the song needs to feed into that idea. So the kids become better at expressing themselves in writing generally. May, may I give you an example of a song that was written by kids in one of the residencies? Yes, please. Okay. Here's a song written by a group of middle school kids. And all the content and vocabulary came from them. Uh, the only thing I did was I helped them edit it to fit a tune. And uh, 
they were studying ancient Egypt, because it's seventh grade, right? You're doing ancient civilizations. And, and I was asking them, well, what should we going to write about ancient Egypt? How about their you know, irrigation and advances in engineering? And they're like, no, no, no. I said, what about the politics and you know this and how the pharaohs work like no 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 we want to know how mummies are made so that's what we researched and here's what they wrote Tutankhamun was a pharaoh of the land along the river and when he died his people tried his stomach and his liver his lungs and his intestine went into the salt of natron then stored in four canopic jars each with a godly body mummified his organs in a jar. So they put a hook into his nose and gently drew his brains out. Be careful where you put them or you'll never get the stains out. They dried him out for 60 days. It was a lot of work. He might once have been a mighty king, but now he's just a jerky when a pharaoh died. He'd be cut and dried. His body mummified his organs in a jar. When he was done with desiccation, they removed the salt he'd been in. They wrapped him up in resin and a hundred yards of linen. They laid him in a coffin and sarcophagus to rest in, with jars to hold his lungs and liver, stomach and intestine. When a pharaoh died, he'd be cut and dried. His body mummified his organs in a jar. So they sealed him in a secret tomb with charms and wards and curses. He lay there through three thousand years and far too many verses. The pyramids were plundered, but the secret tomb was smarter. We might have never found him if it weren't for Albert Carter when a pharaoh died. He'd be cut and dried, his body mummified, his organs in a jar, and when a pharaoh died, he'd be cut and dried, his body mummified, his organs in a jar. <laughs> that was great. As part of its mission to advance excellent teaching in American schools, Annenberg Learner funds and distributes educational video programs with coordinated online and print materials for the professional development of K-12 teachers. Many programs are also intended for students in the classroom and viewers at home with videos that exemplify excellent teaching. K-12 educators, students, and lifelong learners may access Annenberg Learner resources for free at learner.org. Please note, rights restrictions may limit the availability of some series. For the latest information about learner programming and availability, sign up for the Annenberg Learner Newsletter at learner.org. You know, something that you said about the students performing for each other, I'm a big believer in, in those stakes, right? When someone has to get up and do something and show what they've done, they, they just really show up, especially kids. Oh yeah, they really bring it. If I ask them seventh graders, they got to do something to meet to meet my expectations. They'll figure out okay if if they need to go do this much. If I'm asking for this much, they'll they'll see how you know maybe they'll come close. But if it's for each other, they are going to bring it a hundred percent. 
Yeah. Every time. Can you share another story of what has been surprising and for you or the teachers or the school in the environment that they're in? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think the, the big surprise is that w- when they find the kids uh, singing the songs to each other at recess, that's you know one of the pleasant surprises for me is that it's one of those things that sticks with the kids after the lesson is over. So they, they actually create their own follow-through for it. I actually had a grown-up come up to me. Uh, I was at the supermarket about two years ago, and a guy looks at me over this rack of bananas, and he leans over and puts a big finger right on my chest, and he starts singing a song at me about the water cycle, where it's got the names of all the, cl- all the different types of clouds and, and you know, the, the altitude and you know, the, the precipitation. And I, I said... Who are you? He says, I'm, I'm Aram. I was in your class 20 years ago. <laughs> and he had, he had written that song with me and with some other students when he was in third grade in my class. And it was still stuck in his head the whole thing. He just, he just sang it no problem. That's great. That reminds me, when I worked with schools, I remember talking to an administrator who said the the best sign of engagement, whether this uh, platform was working, is if students were talking about it outside of the classroom. How can they not? These songs are fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I've, I've had a lot of help. And, you know, in the early stages, it was basically the Tim Griffin show, where it was just the songs from my albums. My goal is that at least half the songs should be by other people because the, the point of because it was just about me I, I, you know, I could make a CD I could have a website and a YouTube channel and you know fine that's easy lots of people do that but the, the real work is is going through the standards for you know kindergarten all the way up to eighth grade for every subject and hunting through the internet and through the folk song groups there's a dr demento fan club it was a program that was quite popular in the 1980s and for goofy songs about all kinds of things and finding the songs tracking down the creators of them paying them some royalties for which we we raise money from donations and grant funding and collecting it into the library so that we can have all that stuff readily available with a couple of clicks of a mouse this is critical because most of the teachers that I've worked with over the years, at, when I was a teacher and at the schools I visit now as a, as a visiting artist, they agree that the music helps the kids, but most of them will tell me, you know, well, I don't have time to learn to play ukulele, I don't have the talent to write a song or whatever, and I would argue yeah, it's not as hard as you think, but it's also true that nobody's going to be an expert at everything. One of the most important things we can do as professional educators is find a way to, sh- to to identify our strengths and look for ways to share those with other other teachers so that their students can benefit too. And the, and the one thing I found that I did better than pretty much anyone at my school was I could take a complicated concept or lesson and make silly lyrics about it and then revise them and turn it into something that would be fun and informative. If I can do that, and if we can prove that it works, and we have, and we did, a, got the data, we know this works. And if we can do that, and if it, and if it costs nothing to share it online, then it would be crazy not to.
I just think in, in this environment where we're talking a lot about social emotional learning and having students finding creative ways to help them and with with unfinished learning and to really get them up to speed and accelerate learning like this seems like a a great delivery and a great way for students to showcase all of themselves in in song and writing and lyric and I, I love what you said about about the main idea and supporting argument I never thought about a song that way <laughs> there's just so much to take away from this process. That's one reason why you, know, you talk about poetry. There are a lot of you know loosely organized poems that I love. Um, you know, I, I wish I could remember the name of the young lady that, that recited at the uh, the inauguration of President Biden. I mean, boy, you know that was really her show. And also, a guy became president. That's how good she was. But as far as using memory and organizing ideas, I do believe that the rigor of taking your ideas and revising it so that it fits into the boundaries of a sonnet or a limerick or a haiku or any other organized structure. It forces you to really think hard about what you want to say and what you can leave out, which is, of course, a vital skill for writing or speaking in any situation. Best Buy is committed to building brighter futures for teens through tech. With an extensive network of Best Buy teen tech centers, teens are provided safe after-school spaces where they can get hands-on experience with the latest technology in areas like programming, filmmaking, music production, and design. Best Buy has set a goal to support 100 teen tech center locations by 2025, expanding the program's reach to 30,000 teens each year. To find a Best Buy teen tech center near you, visit corporate.bestbuy.com slash social dash impact slash teen dash tech dash centers. Were you a musician before you were a teacher or how did you get into music? When I was a teenager, I was a physics geek and my only real hobbies besides you know, math and science uh, were, you know, I played Dungeons and Dragons and, you know, played video games and stuff. I had a very lucky break. I got, I went to a boarding school that was quite small and there was a very high energy music teacher there who insisted on doing a voice test for everybody. And he checked my voice, found that I had good pitch and that I had a good baritone range, which is rare for people in, in early high school. I had a nice deep voice. So he dragooned me into this new chorus that he was putting together. And furthermore, told the drama teacher, when the drama teacher said they were going to be doing a musical that year, said, you need to audition Tim. To my horror, I was, uh, I was given one of the lead roles in a show called The Fantastic. And there I was singing lead, and I was literally vomiting with fear before each performance because this was so completely outside my comfort zone. And yet... I found that I was getting approval of a completely different kind than I'd ever had before. I'd always gotten approval for my grades, but I'd never had that kind of approval where people are actually watching me and applauding. And mm -hmm. I found that not only was I, was I getting approval, I was getting approval from girls. That, which, which for a teenage boy who, who just starts to sweat even at the thought of speaking to girls, uh, that was a huge incentive. To, to keep up with it. So by the time I was in college, I was, uh, I was singing in a couple of different a cappella groups and a couple of jazz bands and made pretty good money, in, enough to pay for most of my college and graduate school. But what I really wanted to do was teach elementary school. So when I got into the classroom, 
it just felt natural to bring my guitar in with me and start doing those old schoolhouse rock songs and with my kids. And when we're studying a map of the United States, we did Route 66, you know, to, for the highway, and Proud Mary for the Mississippi River, just to help the kids get, get some context for all this stuff. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I figured, well, I wrote some songs for these bands in college. You know, I, I could write lyrics about the weather, I guess. And it just slowly grew over a period of 18 years to a point where I had two full-time jobs. That's beautiful. And uh, what happened to this teacher? Does he or she know what you're up to now? I, fo- I followed up with him a bunch of years later. I sent, sent him a letter and a couple of albums that I had made. And he, he, just sent back, he, just, he just sent back a huge happy a postcard with a huge happy face on it. Yeah, those stories are like, they're gold, right? It reminds us why teachers teach and the, the transformation that can happen with one adult. Yeah, if, if you're lucky, you get a few teachers in your life who just completely change your world. And he, and he was one of those. And I'm sure you are one of them. <laughs> For some of the kids, I sure hope so. Yeah, and what I tell the kids when, when they worry about, oh, well, I don't know if I'm good enough to be, you know, doing music and stuff. When I was teaching first grade, I would take them every two weeks on Friday for lunch. We would go to a nearby retirement community and do a lunchtime show for these elderly people. And the kids would be like, well, I don't know if I'm very good at singing. So, dude, look at these people in the audience. They are literally weeping with joy to see you here. Do they care if you mess up on the lyrics? Do they care if you cannot carry a tune in a bucket? It does not matter. There's this crazy idea, particularly in Los Angeles, where if you're not doing the arts at a professional level, then you have no business doing them. You should not be painting unless people are paying money for it. Uh, You shouldn't be making music unless you're getting paid to do it. We become consumers of the arts, which is a fine thing to be, but I think we also should be artists. And if you don't get paid for it, that's okay. You do it for fun. You do it for your friends. Yeah, you know, I, I hadn't thought about the fact of living in LA puts the, this pressure on kids mm-hmm. to... Well, yeah, because we're surrounded <laughs> by professionals in the arts. You know, there are actors and there are musicians, and it's a little bit intimidating. That's a good takeaway for me. <laughs> and I guess I, I'm not from LA, so I hadn't considered that, but... Yeah, it's it's a blessing and can also be pretty harsh for kids that just want to have fun. Oh yeah, and, and particularly when they get by the time they get to middle school, mm-hmm. uh, because that because now you're starting to really think about what do you, how do your peers see you, mm-hmm. um, which is one reason I found the for the songwriting residency doing it online actually works better than going in person. Because when they're looking at me through a little window on their computer, like it's a lot less intimidating. Uh, they're, they're, they're a lot less filtered in their ideas. And so the, I get more participation. I get more energy out of the kids. I get more writing out of the kids this way than if I walk into the classroom and tell them, okay, everybody, we're going to write. How do they write in a session that's online? Are they submitting like in the chat or they're emailing what they write? How does that work? Well, what we do is, uh, you know, each of them will have a window like we do now, but I, I will have two windows. One is on me and the other is I have a little camera on my desk pointing at uh, a, a blank piece of paper. And that's where I'm taking notes on the conversation. The idea is we do what some people call a circle map or a word web. There are a lot of different names for it, but the idea is a blank piece of paper 
the main idea goes in the middle. And then around that we have three or four supporting ideas. And then for each of those we have some key details or vocabulary words we want to use. And then from there, we, you know, once we've got all that down, we look up some rhyming words. And for each detail, we'll write two lines of text about that. And I, I tell them, don't worry if it rhymes. Don't worry if it's got a steady beat. Just say what you want to say. And you, whatever vocabulary you're using, make sure you're using it in context correctly. And so they start writing, and then we'll write for a couple of minutes, and then we'll pause, and I'll say, okay, who wants to share? And I never make the kids share. I always invite them to share. But I don't insist because, you know, if you insist on making them share, then they're going to clam up, right? They're going to freeze. That can be scary. But once they see that, once they see that the other kids are reading out loud and that I'm being super positive about it and finding something positive to say about everything they share, then they're, they're, they open up. And uh, I try to steer them towards older songs that are not under copyright. But if, it's, but if they really want a Katy Perry tune, then that's what we'll do. The Wallace Annenberg Gen Space is an innovative center for older adults to pursue creativity, connection, and lifelong learning. For more information, visit genspace.la. That's so great. I mean, just your description of this process is it's a really great way for kids to, to learn how to write, to think about context, vocabulary, and then the actual content of it, whatever it is they're learning, could be science or math. Exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, it, with the standards we we're addressing, just that's totally up to the teacher. I've, I've been in classrooms where they wanted songs about conserving water. I've had song, I've had classrooms where the teacher wants a song about kindness. I've had classrooms where they, where they, you know, where they, I, I, I was in Phoenix, Arizona, and they wanted a song to help the kids remember the five C's for Arizona, which are, uh, oh boy, I, I have to sing the song to remember what they are. It's like, but copper, cattle, cotton, climate, and citrus. Those are the five C's, the five pillars of Arizona's economy. And the fourth graders, they, they do Arizona, just like California kids do California in fourth grade. And so I worked with those kids. We wrote a very silly song about the five C's and the kids were just you know they can't sing it without giggling and they, and they all remember it now and by the way for any educators or parents who, who wind up watching this it's free you know all you have to do is contact me let me know and I've never had any teacher or parent uh, who was not glad that we did it okay Tim um, I know we're coming up on time is there anything else that you'd like to share with our learner audience I would urge everyone to have a look at the Griffin Ed website. It is griffined.org. Uh, we have a library of fun, rigorously researched songs, mostly educational, not 100% of them. Some of them are there just for fun. But mostly, uh, it is a growing library of songs organized by grade level and subject. So you can find something for second grade math or fifth grade earth science, uh, you know, kindergarten through middle school. We do have a few songs suitable for high school and even college, but really it's a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Do you want to close us out with another song? Sure. <laughs> um, one, one thing you asked about me was, uh, what is your most popular song? May I finish with that one? Yes, please. Uh, this is one that's for California history, and it's a true story about something that happened in 1928, a little ways north of Los Angeles. Now, a lot of people know where Mulholland Drive is, but, but most people don't really know anything about William Mulholland and why he was such a huge deal. 
So this is a song about uh, something that happened at the end of his career. It was 1928 when the engineer Mulholland said the St. Francis Dam was good to go. With a whole year's worth of water for a thirsty growing Southland and no danger to the people down below. But a little short of midnight came a thunder like a cannon with a lot of sleeping people in the way. Fifty million tons of water came down Francisquito Canyon and a night shift operator started calling folks to say Can you hear me in Castic? This is Lucy on the line Wake your family, get them up to higher ground It's not much time, you better run out of that canyon Leave all your things behind Now I got some other calls to me, said Lucy on the line Lucy was a hello girl in the town of Santa Paula You'd hear her voice each time you used the phone With her fingers on her switchboard she connected every call And sometimes she worked the evening shift alone Then one night in 1928 came word from up the valley The dam had failed and death was on the way and though Lucy was no expert, she knew water runs downhill. So she sat down at her switchboard calling people up to say, Can you hear me up in Saugus? This is Lucy on the line. You know a lot of little towns are in the way. One is mine. We got a monster in our valley and we're running out of time. Go get the chill out of bed, said Lucy on the line. Then Pyru gone right off the grid, the flood was coming closer, with a hundred feet of water, earth and stone. When the sheriff ordered Lucy out, she simply told him no sir, went back to saving people on the phone. When the flood came down to Fillmore Town, a lot of homes went under. She knew which town would be the next to fall. Then through an open window, Lucy heard a growing thunder, but she held the line to place just one more call. Can you hear me, Santa Paula? This is Lucy on the line. Wake your neighbors, wake your children. Families who, thanks to Lucy, made it out in time Helped to spread the word and thank the Lord for Lucy on the line The flood ran down along the banks of the Santa Clara River Leaving fifty miles of death from dam to sea With near five hundred people lost, some were never found Mulholland said, just put the blame on me. All the people of the valley wondered what became of Lucy. 
But all the folding power lines were down It took a long time to fix them Then the people learned When they all picked up their phones And heard an old familiar sound Can you hear me in Ventura? This is Lucy on the line You know it got a little hairy there But sure, doing fine I thought the water had me beat But it missed by several feet Give the neighbors my best wishes And a big hug for the missus Give all the kids my kisses This is Lucy on the line true story. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. This was such a delight. Um, we're excited to be able to share this with everyone and look forward to tracking Griffin Ed and sharing this with other educators. Right on. Okay. Well, you two have a beautiful day. Okay. The Annenberg Learner Podcast joins the catalog of multimedia professional learning content to support educators teaching in more effective ways. Annenberg Learner is the education division of the Annenberg Foundation. Learner supports the foundation's mission to encourage the development of more effective ways to share ideas and knowledge. Go to learner.org and annenberg.org to learn more.